Good afternoon, everyone. It's Dr. Nigro again. Our next episode of Psychology Unplugged. Uh, another great week of talking with all of you guys. I think I've gotten back to pretty much everybody who has texted, emailed, called me. Although we, there's a few people I think we're trying to connect over this coming week. I really appreciate um, the suggestions because that you know we want to talk about the topics that you guys are interested in. Uh, so one uh, person wanted, uh, suggested uh, we do an episode on autism. Another, we delve uh, more deeper into childhood trauma, PTSD, sexual abuse, how that manifests uh, clinically. Um, and again, very humbled. I uh, never expected this podcast to reach the size of an audience that uh, it has. So again, uh, much gratitude to everybody who listens and follows us on, on a weekly basis. Uh, I will try my best, as many of you have asked, if I can do more episodes a week. Um, so hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll get to that place. Uh, and again, very humble that a lot of you guys are flying in from various parts of the country um, and trusting me to do neuropsych evals either for yourselves or for one of your family members. So... Today's topic uh, is one that people has been kind of a consistent theme, and uh, that I did an episode uh, several months ago about bipolar disorders. So we're going to revisit bipolarity today, uh, and Julie has made it very clear that I do not interrupt her, and she's going to have a major role in this episode from a pharmacological standpoint because bipolar disorder is really a dual modality treatment. By dual modality, I'm saying it's cognitive behavioral therapy and psychopharmacology. So I wanna, there's there's three types of bipolar disorders. And bipolar was first developed in the, or, well, manic depressive was the old clinical term, but now it's called bipolar and there's three types. Bipolar one, bipolar two, and cyclothymic disorder. Now, the the individual with bipolar 1 and bipolar 2 both have to meet the diagnostic criteria for a major depressive episode, which is 5 out of 9 symptoms for major depressive disorder. As I've mentioned in several episodes, um, disorders are not monolithic. So depression in one individual is not necessarily how it looks like in another, in another, in another. There's 120 different combinations of major depressive disorder. Um, none of you will be surprised who follow this program. If you have a question about a psychiatric condition, especially if it's bipolarity, depression, whatever, get a full neuropsych valve. It is the only way to know with specificity. We have the instruments and the tests that actually, I, you know, test for this stuff. It, it not only just give you the answer, but explain in such explicit detail how the symptoms manifest idiosyncratic to an individual. So mania and hypomania, the symptoms are essentially the same. The differentiating factor between mania and hypomania is simply the length of time that they persist. So mania has to last at least seven or more days. Sometimes it can go into a month, two months. Hypomania, it has to last at least four days. It's the least severe form of between bipolar 1 and bipolar 2 is less severe. Cyclothymic disorder, an individual does not meet the full diagnostic criteria for major depressive disorder or mania or hypomania. Okay, so let's talk about mania. What is it? From 
a diagnostic perspective, I'm going to go through the diagnostic criteria for mania. Uh, inflated sense of self-esteem or grandiosity. Now, this is completely different from the episode I did on narcissism. This is a feeling of invincibility. I am on top of the world, and I can do anything. Because dopamine is flooding the system. That's our pleasure neurotransmitter. And and during a manic or hypomanic episode, there is this incredible this this feeling of just utter invincibility. A decreased need for sleep. Sleeping for three hours, not sleeping for several days. During which time you're going to become more talkative, uh, pressured speech, flight of ideas, uh, racing thoughts. You hear this all, all the time. I can't shut my mind off. I, I can't shut my mind off. I lay in bed at night. My, my thoughts are racing. Thoughts are racing. Racing thoughts, a lot of times when, when clinicians hear that, they go, you have bipolar. And I'm telling you, from my experience as a diagnostician, that's one symptom. A lot of people with racing thoughts just have unipolar depression where they're just constantly or, or, or OCD. Um, distractibility, increase in goal-directed activity, excessive involvement in behaviors that have a high potential for negative, high degree of pleasurability, but a high potential for negative consequences. So reckless spending, foolish business investments, uh, sexual promiscuity, masturbation, hypersexuality, pornography, jumping on planes to Vegas and, and maxing out credit cards because there's that feeling of invincibility that you know, this is this is awesome. This is a neurochemical disorder. This is an actual shift in in, in the brain's pathophysiology that that that's impacting and and manifesting as these uh, manic and hypomanic episodes. There's some specifiers. Uh, you can have rapid cycling where people go in and out of depression and mania. That's a more severe form. Um, you can have bipolar disorder with or without psychotic features. That that's a much more complicated form of bipolarity, um, but the depression in bipolar depression is a much deeper and darker depression than just major depressive disorder. And a lot of times, we'll find individuals are using illicit substances, um, self medicating, but oftentimes use uh, misuse of stimulants, cocaine, crack to kind of kickstart the central nervous system and the brain into getting into a manic episode. Uh, some people can use their mania in very creative ways. Uh, a lot of musicians, they can use that, that time not sleeping and, and, and people, you know, it has a bipolar has a really negative connotation, but you want to work with helping people that if you're in a manic episode, you know, you're starting multiple projects all at once and people, there's an access to a lot of creativity. And, and using that frenetic energy in, in, in ways that can be more adaptive. So uh, bipolar can look like ADHD. Bipolarity can look like borderline personality disorder. Can you have all three? Yes. Can you have two? Yes. Can you have just one? Yes. Hence, getting a full neuropsych eval is the only way to delineate. Do you have all three or do you have one? Because bipolar is medication, borderline is therapy. Two totally separate diagnoses, two totally separate uh, trajectories. One is medication, one is therapy, even though borderline is typically medicated like bipolarity. So uh, it's, it, it's a disorder that is a very common referral question that I get. And, and many people who have bipolarity, 
generally have a history of psychiatric hospitalizations, either during their manic episode because their behavior is so egregious and, and, and destructive and problematic that it results in them being a danger to themselves or others, or when that depression hits and it's so dark and so deep and they become suicidal. So a good cross-check, you know, in, in looking in, in from a diagnostic perspective is a history of psychiatric hospitalizations. And I spend a lot of time during my structured diagnostic clinical interview because bipolarity has a very strong heritability index. And by heritability index, I mean, if there's a family history of bipolarity, and I remember uh, did my education and clinical training in in Chicago, I remember uh, my professors would say, the closer you are to the Charles River, which is the river in Boston, the more likely you are to be diagnosed with bipolar. Uh, Now that I live in Massachusetts, (laughs) close to Boston, um, you know, there's something called the, the halo effect or diagnostic overshadowing. And I think a lot of times people will gravitate towards one symptom and then put somebody in that diagnostic category. That is why I, when I do neuropsych evals, with the exception of head injuries, I never read previous evaluations. I never talk to therapists. I never talk to prescribers. I I take an unbiased approach. And this is my personal philosophy because human nature is you can't unknow something. If you read clinical notes, you read a previous eval, and someone says bipolar, OCD, generalized anxiety disorder, human nature is you start to almost second guess yourself. I would rather do my own structured diagnostic clinical interview, and I'm not purporting to know everything about everything. I'm just saying I have a very specific methodology of how I go about doing evals. It doesn't mean I won't talk to people or read stuff afterwards, but I I prefer to just take the individual as they are. Let me ask the questions. Let me use the assessments. Let me use the skills I have. Let me do the diagnostic process and see what the data yields. Not what I, you know, what I think it is, what I, I will find out and know what it is and not just what it is, but how it manifests so specific and idiosyncratic in every individual because, again, these are not monolithic disorders. You take any disorder in the diagnostic manual, they manifest differently in different people. So that's just the approach I take. So I'm not averse to saying, hey, I don't want to talk to you. I don't care what you think. I don't value your input. It's let me get the data first. Then, then, then we'll have the conversations. Then I'll read the reports. Then I'll read. I just think that's the most appropriate way to go about diagnostics. So Julie is around. Um, this is a disorder that she treats uh, frequently. Uh, it, it is a very common uh, diagnosis and one that does require somebody who's very good in the field of psychopharmacology. Um, I will do my best not to interrupt her, and I'm sure if I do, I'll get the look. All right. Well, here she's getting a look already now. All right. Here you go. Here you go, honey. So I'm going to start with um, three vignettes um, to kind of give you a visual or narrative story to the different types of bipolarity and how it might look like in narrative form. I feel like that helps because clinically speaking, when we say these terms like pressured speech, 
grandiosity. You've probably seen movies. You probably know people who maybe may act like this. You might see this in actual life. But some of these symptoms, like mania, I can't tell you how many people are like, "What the hell is mania?" or "What's what's hypomania?" I don't know if I've had it or not. So. This is all part of taking an accurate history. Like I said, and I always say in a perfect world, everyone would have, it's the Rolls Royce of treatment. Everyone would have a neuropsych eval and be, you know, diagnosed, you know, at the very beginning and put on the perfect med regimen, but that's just not how psychiatry and psychology works. So um, that's part of our mission. So bear with me. Um, Talking about bipolar disorder, I'm just going to, I, I, I always refer to Dr. Stahl. He's one of my favorites, and Dr. Sobel. Um, I like their work, so I use them a lot in my resources. Um, but I'm going to first give you, like, kind of a, a the first vignette is, is Anne. Anne is a 31-year-old woman who comes for treatment complaining of marital difficulties. She's been married for approximately two years. The marriage is extremely rocky at best. She complains of frequent arguments with her husband and says he doesn't understand her. She is tired, depressed, and irritable and has difficulty sleeping. She complains of problems with concentration and memory. She works as a teacher in dread school each day. Her history reveals that approximately five years ago, she was driving on the freeway. She felt extremely happy, full of energy, and was going to meet some friends for happy hour. While driving on the freeway, she saw a man driving in the car next to her. He intrigued her. She somehow managed to force him safely off the side of the road. They both stopped and got out of their cars. She approached him and explained that she forced him off the road because she found him to be so attractive and wanted to get to know him better. Flattered, he was receptive to her advances, phone numbers were exchanged, and to make a long story short, they eventually got married. She recognized that this was in the midst of a full-blown manic episode, and she did this impulsive, risky behavior. This is not surprising that her, their marriage is having difficulties, as her mood instability has continued, and he is at a loss to understand what happens at times to this, his carefree, flirtatious, and happy-go-lucky wife, especially at times such as now when she is very depressed. Mary suffers from bipolar disorder. It is not surprising that they are struggling with this, especially as she has not received any treatment for it. The next is Bob. Bob is a 45-year-old single man who describes the long history of substance abuse. At times, he has abused alcohol and marijuana, especially when feeling tense and driven with his thoughts racing and with falling, difficulty falling asleep. He states that during these times, his use of alcohol and marijuana helped him feel a bit more like my normal self. Other times, he's abused cocaine and amphetamines. He states that he has done this when he feels tired and lethargic and he just can't get he just can't get going with his daily activities. He has seen physicians over the years complaining of various medical problems and in fact he discussed his drug and alcohol use plus the reasons for it with two physicians. One referred him to a psychotherapist for substance abuse treatment. He discussed these issues with a psychotherapist whose recommendation was that, was that he maintain sobriety in a 10-12 step program. He now presents stating, I am sick and tired of feeling sick and tired and wanting an evaluation. When asked about his history of hypomanic or manic episode, he expressed puzzlement, not fully understanding what this means. He is stable to state that at times he's felt periods of depression, but more like other, more, more than like other people I know. At the end of our initial evaluation, 
I asked him to educate himself about hypomania in particular. He returned a week later, having researched it on the internet, and with his eyes wide, stating, That is what I have been experiencing in the past. I just never knew it. How come no one else was able to recognize this for me? He he clearly suffers from bipolar type 2 with episodes of depression and episodes of hypomania. When depressed, he self-medicated with stimulants such as cocaine and crystal meth. When hypomanic, restless and anxious, he self-medicated with depressants such as alcohol and marijuana. He subsequently got into treatment, which was kind of a success story. Um, The third is Elizabeth. She is a 25-year-old single woman who presents, who presents describing clear-cut episodes of depression with sadness, anxiety, irritability, fatigue, difficulties maintaining concentration and memory, a decrease in her ability to obtain pleasure, otherwise known as anhedonia, and at times thoughts, thoughts that life may in fact not be worth living. She also describes classic symptoms of hypomania with an elevation of mood, feeling overly happy, at times giddy. She is increasingly energetic. During these periods, her thoughts race. Her self-esteem is markedly elevated, and she may become impulsive with increase in her sex drive. She has seen a number of therapists and psychiatrists in the past. She suffers classic symptoms of depression and classic symptoms of hypomania. However, she has never been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Instead, she has been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Why? Because these classic episodes have not lasted days or weeks in duration, but rather several hours. In fact, she can have two of them in the same day. This form of bipolar is sometimes called ultra-rapid cycling bipolar. She has now been in treatment for approximately three years and is taking a mood stabilizer called Lamictal, otherwise known as Lamotrigine. And I'll get that. No, she is stabilized and no one at this point is treating her for borderline personality. Um, I'm going to go on to do another clinical, you know, kind of explanation of the domains of bipolarity. Um, So bipolar presents with four symptom domains. They include manic mood and behavior, such as euphoria, grandiosity, pressured speech, impulsivity, excessive libido, recklessness, social intrusiveness, and a decreased need for sleep. The second domain is dysphoric or negative mood and behavior, including depression, anxiety, irritability, agitation, agitation, hostility, sometimes violent behavior, and sometimes suicide or suicide attempts. The third symptom domain involves cognitive symptoms such as racing thoughts, distractibility, disorganization, and inattentiveness. The fourth and final domain is psychotic symptoms that occur in some cases, including delusions, hallucinations, and a thought disorder. So just to put a picture for you, um, I feel like there are several reasons why, and people are puzzled by it. So our whole mission is to kind of demystify this. But to demystify it even further is like I'm going to shift to how we treat bipolar disorder. I'm only going to use monotherapy. Um, that means that I'm only going to discuss one category of um, uh, one category of um, medication. Um, that 
it's there are different classes, but it's it. I'll explain as I go. Um. So remember how I talked about in previous episode neurotransmission. The stigma of bipolar disorder is vile. It it should not be this way, but it is. And this is my mission. If I if it, if I can do anything, is to make fee- people feel more at ease with the fact that this is all about neurotransmission. This is all about brain chemistry. It really, truly is. Especially with bipolar, because people, it's mood-driven, and it's not even really mood-driven. It's neurotransmission and brain activity that creates a mood state that is unpredictable. And people don't know why they feel what they feel and when they feel it. And then it shifts from mania or hypomania to depression. With bipolarity, the depression states are shorter than major depressive disorder. So that's one clue. Usually it's several days, sometimes a couple weeks. In rare cases, it's it's a month or two. But that's one very important distinction to make. Whereas major depressive disorder, if it's not treated and remitted, it can last years without any hypomania or manic state. So when we treat depression we target serotonin and norepinephrine. When we treat anxiety, we treat the GABA and serotonin systems. With psychosis, which we talked about before, we treat and we modulate dopamine and serotonin. So, but unlike all of these, all of these, it's not definite protocol, but there's more protocol to it. The medications are targeting this neurotransmission activity or lack thereof, to improve that activity, therefore improving mood states, anxiety, depression, and including psychosis. So, no one, people are mystified by by, by bipolar. I can't, I would be here literally for days if I were to start from, I'm just only going to put out there certain things, give us feedback if I'm missing something, you want me to elaborate on something in the future. But I'm just kind of pulling kind of points and pearls here. Um, the first medication ever discovered to treat bipolar was lithium. And it was, it was actually like all medications, most medications that are out there in psych were devised to treat something medical and then didn't work or was, you know, wasn't what they, what their expectations were and subsequently wound up treating something else. Um, so the man's name is John Cade, and he was a physician in Australia. He was actually attempting to find a salt substitute. Lithium is an ion. It's important to remember this. This is an ion. It's in, it, it is involved in neuronal activity. Sodium. It's an ion. Lithium is a salt. It's a version of salt. It's, it turns out it wasn't a great, they, they were trying to make a salt substitute for people who had, had uh, hypertension. It turned out that it, it, it failed miserably because the hypertensive episodes were increasing because it was a salt and the toxicity levels got so high so quick. That brings me to the point when talking about lithium, lithium has a therapeutic threshold. Um, people, outpatient, inpatient providers really try to find that that the the dosage range, right? So in comparison to the therapeutic threshold, if you go above the therapeutic threshold, people can become toxic, so then they can get really sick. 
So that's why we take blood. That's why we take blood levels. Um, therapeutic blood, the levels that they arguably, um, it's 0.8 to 1.2. And that isn't, that's like the, the, the trough level in the blood. So you, there's a timing. It's all, it's very kind of intricate. I'm not going to really go there. Um, other, other, Providers um, feel a little bit more comfortable in the 0.6 to 1.0 range. Um, Again, talk to your provider about it. Um, It's just blood levels are to be taken. Um, Typically, we do them once a month. It depends on it depends on the circumstances. Um, You want to get your blood work done before you ever take lithium full panel blood work because lithium can affect the kidneys. It affects the renal system. It affects the thyroid. And I'm going to give you a little scenario here too to teach you something about that. Um, There are different variations of lithium. Like they all have most commonly uses lithium carbonate. Um, And we don't fully understand the mechanism of action with lithium. It's kind of a mystery. It's the only known mood stabilizer out there. I'm going to move on in a few moments to teach you about the other so-called mood stabilizers we use. So we don't really fully understand the mechanism of action with lithium other than what I've expressed so far. We know that it's an ion, and in some fashion, it works to stabilize neuronal cell membranes, probably by interacting with secondary messengers such as inositol. It also impacts the serotonin system. The, the specific system of this is not well understood. There are many forms. They have side effects. Gastrointestinal can make people feel dopey and tired, and it can also cause weight gain, among other things. So having said that, so we try to treat the symptoms as we initiate lithium after we get a baseline knowing that someone's healthy enough to take lithium we're looking at electrolytes because we're looking at electrolytes because sodium chloride they're they're all measured in the blood they're all measured in the body so we want to make sure someone's not hypernatremic, meaning having too much sodium in their bloodstream because then we need to be really careful so Again, talk to your provider about all that, Um, but just making sure you get the baseline overall. Um, But at the end of the day, the long story short on lithium is the general consensus is that the dose that makes you well is generally the dose that you need to stay well. So that's for maintenance, to stave off mania, to stave off bipolar depression. Um, it's good mostly for, I feel like it's very effective for mania, although people all very often providers that I know very well will lace lithium in to treat someone who is suicidal. Um, the, the research out there is kind of a mixed bag. It, it definitely seems to help people. Not sure hundred percent if it's a placebo effect or not. Um, sometimes people who are suicidal, they may be struggling with major depressive disorder. It's, again, I know providers who use that and lithium, just a teensy bit of lithium or some vari- varying dose of lithium can help decrease the level of suicidality. Um, again, talk to your provider about it. You know, everybody prescribes differently. Um, it, it, it decreases irritability. Um, the response rate is pretty good. Um, but... Uh, moving on, um, there's there's lithium 
lithium does has some severe interactions with other medications. This is very crucial. It interacts um, any medication that needs a therapeutic range and needs blood work. You need to be very careful about what other medications that you take that can interact with that because what you don't want is an increase in your medication. You don't want the increase in lithium if you're kind of teetering on that higher threshold, right? So NSAIDs are pretty much a never do situation. Talk to your provider because an NSAID is something that not everybody, we have personal experience with this, not everybody talks about the -the over-the-counter stuff, okay? NSAIDs are very problematic. Um, Don't take them if you don't absolutely need them and talk to your doctors about that. Um, Because an NSAIDs can increase the the dose of lithium. And what what happens is that people become lithium toxic and it affects... What? Examples of NSAIDs. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. at, at the pharmacy, ask your pharmacist, okay? Ask your doctor. Um, th- these are the over-the-counter pain medication. Um, diuretics can also reduce the cl- um, renal clearance of lithium, resulting in toxic levels. So if you're taking a diuretic. Um, what else? It's an excellent medication. Um, it's frequently underutilized because of the stigma attached to it. I mean, everybody knows lithium. If you hear lithium... People think it's way too serious and I must be really sick. Um, that's a stigma. It's not necessarily the truth. Um, let's see. Sometimes lithium can cause tremors. Um, that we, we always treat those typically with beta blockers like atenolol or propanolol. Atenolol does not cross the blood brain barrier like propanolol does. Propanolol also is notoriously known for, uh, causing depression. Um, over long-term use. So I would, you know, if you're taking propanolol, talk to your provider about that if you start to feel more depressed. Um, Lithium also affects thyroid function. And this is very important for you to know as people, humans out there. Um, Because in a situation where a patient's taking lithium and is doing well, then starts to become tired, depressed, apathetic, and anhedonic, and with complaints of weight gain. Often, a provider might think they're having a recurrence of bipolar depression, and the dose of lithium is increased because the provider incorrectly believes that the depression occurred because the dose was simply not high enough. Instead, check thyroid function. Thyroid function, the TSH, the thyroid stimulating hormone may be high, which indicates hypothyroidism. And hypothyroidism counts for the symptoms that are being seen, which I just discussed. Increasing the lithium lithium dose is not only not going to help, it's going to aggravate the problem even further. Hydration is very important because it's a salt or a variation of salt. Hydration is very, very important. Um, Dehydration can lead lead to toxicity. Um, Okay, I'm going to shift for a second to talk about not lithium as a mood stabilizer, but the next bevy of mood stabilizers that we use. But they are called anticonvulsant medications. These are these are really interesting drugs. 
Um, I'm going to explain a little bit in detail of how they work and that you have a better understanding of how to destigmatize once and for all bipolarity. Do you know what kindling wood is? I, I say this because the most commonly prescribed class of medications to treat bipolar dis- disorder address kindling. Kindling wood is the small sticks and pieces of wood that are lit to start a fire. Anyone who's listening knows what I'm talking about. Eventually, they spark up into a more significant fire, and then larger logs can be added. Kindling is a phenomenon that we are theor- that we theorize also occurs in the brain. Nerve cells are kindling, example, firing when they should not be. If they spark up and a fire occurs, symptoms occur. If these nerve cells are in the temporal lobe, the fire turns into an epileptic seizure. If the cells are in the limbic system, we theorize that this firing results in a mood disorder state that is depression, mania, hypomania, and or mixed episode, a mood seizure. Anti-epileptic, anti-convulsant mood stabilizers are theorized to work by being anti-kindling. That is decreasing the kindling activity of these nerve cells and decreasing the risk of the mood seizure occurring when the nerve cells fire. This is crucial to understand this because this is this is why stigmatism pisses me off. The first of these medications that we really reach for is Depakote. Um, Depakote is also known as valproic acid. It's used in the treatment of epilepsy and to prevent migraines. Depakote also works by affecting the GABA system. GABA system is the anxiety system when we're trying to rein in the amygdala. Dosage goes from, I'm not getting into dosages, we'll be here all night, also has a therapeutic serum level in the trough level of the blood. Between 50 and 150. Usually the sweet spot is around 100, but it varies. Symptoms of mania typically start to decrease starting in about one to four days after the valproic acid level is greater than about 50 milligrams per liter. That's the measurement. So let's say you're in an outpatient treatment setting. This process is going to go a lot more slow than if you're on an inpatient unit where they can do blood draws and they can do all this like in 24, 48 a week's time, they can get people stabilized quicker on when someone's in a full-blown manic state and they need to be stabilized on a medication ASAP. So Depakote causes nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and weight gain. It can also be sedating. Sometimes it's um, it's uh, di- it's uh, prescribed at bedtime. Um, so hair loss can occur. Um, that's with a depletion of the minerals of zinc and selenium. So sometimes we'll have people take, um, you know, over the counter supplements, um, to replenish those two, um, if that makes sense. So nutrients, nutrients, what'd you say? Supplements. Yeah. Um, so, so basically, um, I don't want to get into this in too grave detail, but, um, there's all different, um, it's a, the, the dosage is the most important thing. So, you know, 
500,000, 1,500, blah, blah, blah. I could go on and on again. Valproic acid, though, Depakote, is teratogenic. It causes neural tube defects and should not be used during pregnancy. It can also cause polycystic ovary system. Um, and it should be women, and I educate women all the time about medications that are uh, detrimental in pregnancy, and you should talk to your provider about that. I can't tell you, probably 85, and I'm not blaming, everybody's trying to help out there, but I can't tell you probably 85 people uh, that that cross my path in, in my work, females of childbearing age, 85, people or 85%, 85% sorry, <laughs> have no idea that the medications that they're taking could be detrimental to pregnancy. Um, I also say if you're planning on having a child or planning on having families, this is another one of my soapboxes. I, I, I know you must have checked out by now, guys. But I really educate people on this and to collaborate with your OBGYN. Yeah, and ask your, your pre- provider so you don't get a kid with like six, 15 fingers and That's 25 toes. I'm just funny. saying it's real. People don't know this stuff. Place. All right. So they don't. Um, so we should and, and, and talk to your uh, doctor and your provider about birth control with mood stabilizers. Some can increase um, the level of, of medication you're taking and others can trigger a uh, rapid metabolize metabolization of birth control. So your birth control may not work as well. So you really want to have all your providers in the loop and you need to stay on top of this. Um, especially think about a manic episode, you're hypersexual. Okay. I mean, talk about unplanned pregnancy. I'm just saying like, Education, education, a better understanding of what can possibly happen to decrease risks. Um, Tegretol uh, is also called carbamazepine and trileptol. Trileptol is oxcarbamazepine. They both are also anticonvulsant medications that are used for bipolarity. Um, you know, Tegretol affects sodium and ca- calcium channels and decreases the excitability of nerve cell membranes, thereby theoretically stabilizing mood. More effective for mania than it is for depression. Tegretol has a very narrow, but you see how it's explaining this in scientific terms. This is not mood driven. This is not about people acting like jerks or people acting crazy. Um, The Tegretol window, therapeutic window is very, very slim it's one of those medications that I don't think is not my first choice. But again, if you asked other people, it's just because of compliance and regular blood work. Um, and it can, it can, you know, wreak havoc with birth control pills. Um, let's see, I could go on and on and on. Um, Tegretol and Trileptol don't cause as much weight gain. Um, as lithium and Depakote. Um, so those can be attractive, uh, especially for people who don't want to gain weight. Um, so, and trileptal to explain just like Tegretol is an anti-convulsant and an anti-kindling agent that also affects the calcium and sodium membrane channels, resulting in the stabilization of nerve cell membranes, decreasing the kindling phenomenon in causing mood stability. Um, it can cause uh, 
decrease in sodium levels too. So you want to make sure you, you, you again, electrolytes. Um, Tegretol and Trileptol are pregnancy, uh, pregnancy category C. They can, however, cause uh, neurotube uh, defects such as spina bifida. So women beware. Um, another one is... Can I ask you a question? Sure. How compliant are people with bipolarity on their medications versus other psychiatric conditions? Um, well, I think peop- I think it's unfortunate um, that mania... Some people are really at the at the point in treatment where they're completely engaged, like they they know the process of the bipolar process in their life. Like they can sense it. it it's it's level of readiness, right? People who really love, I mean, hypomania. It's like if we could all go through life with just hypomania. I mean, no one who's hypomanic really wants to stop it because that's when people are their most creative, energetic, and happy. But again, it's followed by a drop in mood. It's followed by depression. And it's it's cyclical. People sometimes don't take their medications when they're, and they don't present to treatment when they're manic, obviously, because they're just so, they're like a locomotive that's gone off the rails. They don't even, they have no control over it. Um, You know, talk about you know, brain activity, and um, they 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 um, they're enabled to, and they're making they're making choices, and they're they're do, doing behaviors that get them into trouble, and so I feel like that part of it, people tend to, or they tend to give up the depressive episodes or not, you know, in the midst of treatment. And people when you're with not- migraine headaches and metabolic syndrome have a high prevalence of bipolarity. I'll let Julie talk about metabolic syndrome. Well, I don't see the connection with metabolic syndrome and well, I don't I don't see that. I see it from my view, I see it more as a result of medications, like the side effects of medications like Depakote, lithium, they can cause weight gain. Some of the antipsychotics, Seroquel, quetiapine, weight gain. Um, Zyprexa, enormous so it's more weight gain. of an artifact of it. To me, the that I, in my in my you know experience, um, gabapentin, neurontin, that's another popular one, also because it's sold and abused, um, also known as Johnny's. Um, Five dollar street value. <laughs> That's thank you, Cora. That's nice that you know Just, that. I learned that from patients. Oh, okay. Uh, Neurotin uh, does not bind to GABA, which is what people think. So, but it does have anti-anxiety properties. But generally, it's not FDA approved for bipolar disorder. Although it does work for a lot of different folks. Um, it's processed through the kidneys, so it's it's a, a, a decent go-to medication that can alleviate bipolar bipolar symptoms. But and also um, decrease anxiety, but it also works for a diabetic neuropathy pain, ner- that type of pain. So it's one of those three for medications. It can cause sedation, um, but it's also highly abused. And sometimes when you're taking it, I feel like people just need more and more and more of it. The good news is, is that if you have if you have hepatic, um, if you have a bad liver, if you have liver poor liver condition, it's processed through the kidney. So it's, it's pretty safe to use that instead of something that is going to be metabolized via your liver. 
Topamax is another one, uh, anti-convulsant, anti-kindling medication, also blocks sodium channels, increases the release of excitatory neurotransmitter glutamate, and potentiates the GABA system. Topamax also causes weight gain, um, weight, weight, uh, weight loss. Uh, it has been used in weight loss programs. Sometimes we will add uh, Topamax or use Topamax, also known as Topiramate, when someone is on a medication that's causing weight gain, like if, let's say someone's on Abilify or Seroquel and they're stable on it or fairly stable. Um, I don't treat weight loss, but if there's a, you know, a side a, a, a factor of a p- person who's obese or morbidly obese or gaining weight because of medications, Topamax, Topiramate can be very helpful. Um, again, killing two birds with one stone. Um, uh, Lamotrigine, oh, well, one of my favorites. Um, uh, oh, uh, Topamax can cause um, birth defects as well. Clef, cleft palate. Um, so just so you know that, I wanted to say that. Um, so uh, Lamotrigine is, this is the last one I'm going to talk about, then I'm going to stop talking. Um, affects the GABA system. It's an ant, Lamotrigine, Lamictal is one of my faves. It is an anti-eleptic, we don't talk, call them that, we call them anti-convulsants, and anti-kindling medication. It also decreases the release of excitatory neurotransmitters such as glutamate and aspartate. As a result of these me- mechanisms of action, it's an effective mood stabilizer. However, and I know this to be true, Lamotrigine does not target it's used as maintenance in bipolarity, but it does not really effectively treat bipolar, manic, or hypomanic episodes. Maybe a little hypomanic, but not mania. It treats bipolar depression. And it doesn't have uh, weight gain uh, as a side effect, which makes it... And it, and it doesn't need um, blood work, typically. The red, the black box warning on Lamotrigine and why it's, we titrate it very, very slowly because usually it winds up 10% of people may get a rash. Usually it's benign. One in 150,000, I think, get the Steven Johnson's rash, um, which is a toxic epidermal necrolysis and that requires hospitalization. So when you're taking Lamotrigine and you're, I'm sure your provider who's, who's giving you this medication is telling you to watch for a rash during titration. Um, it's usually you have to get it checked. Um, talk to your provider about that. Um, let's see. Oh, it's one in 1000 adults will develop a rash. Um, so, this is where I'm going to stop because it could be here forever. I mean, I could talk about the atypicals that we use as adjunct um, in bipolar disorder. Um, I, you know, I'll be here all night. I will address that at a later date. Um, we're talking about like Abilify. We're talking about Latuda. We're talking about Raylar. We're talking about Rexalti. We're talking about, oh my God, there's so many. So um, that's it for me today, guys. Hope you have a great weekend. Thanks for listening. <coughs> All right, so I did my best not to interrupt Julie, but I did one or two times. So uh, bipolar is, um, it 
It's a severe psychiatric condition, but it's really important to, you know, I, I mentioned this in other episodes. If you have it, it's something you have. It's not something you are with all psychiatric conditions. Um, does it, does bipolar require a lot of treatment and, and maintenance and medication, depending on like what Julia said, frequent blood draws, depending if you're on Depakote, Tegretol, um, lithium. Yeah, there's a lot of work and there's, there's, there, you know, if you go back to the episode last week on like help rejectors, you know, these are people that, you know, I, I'm not speaking for Julie, but probably can like, I don't think she would put somebody on lithium or Depakote. Um, that's not going to get their, you know, not going to go to Quest Diagnostics and, you know, advocate for themselves and get their weekly blood draws. So this is a longer than usual episode, but uh, bipolarity is a very common referral question that I get as a neuropsychologist diagnostician and it's something that really needs to be tangled out because if you go on a bipolar medication and you don't have it you can have really bad side effects you know like i guess like i said adhd borderline personality disorder um major depressive disorder you know you want to differentiate are these you know uh, when i'm asking about like you know elevated mood euphoria um decreased need for sleep you know a, a lot of times sometimes these are just good days these are not transitions into an alternative mood state which bipolar is so again, get a full neuropsych eval, whether it's through me or somebody in your area, just get the full diagnostic picture. And for the grace of God, I hope they know what they're doing because you, you know, the wrong diagnosis can get you on the wrong medication, which can lead to the wrong type of treatment and the wrong type of outcome that you want. Um, so it's it's again a very common referral question that I I I get, and as I said earlier at the outset, uh, this is a longer episode than we uh, think we anticipated. Can it be bipolar? Can it be borderline? Can it be ADHD? Yes, but with kids in ADHD, and this is where you know you don't read this online, you don't learn this. Um, from a class or seminar, but from really great professors that I had, you know, bipolar in kids. Two differentiating factors are lack of empathy, purposeful violence, delusions of grandeur, not psychotic, but just that feeling of invincibility. The sooner you can shut this disorder down with medication, the better off you'll be. We'll come. We'll we'll come back to this at some point with the cognitive behavioral approach from a therapy perspective. But I know Julie confronts this on a daily basis, and a lot of you guys have asked us to get shed more light onto it. And um, I mean, independent of her being my wife, she's an amazing prescriber, and and we have other colleagues. Uh, kind of shy to be on the program, but you know, I'm the extrovert, Julie's the introvert. Maybe you guys picked it up by now. 
Um, but Julie really is an amazing prescriber and, and she's least meds possible. And that really is the goal, I think, for effective treatment. And we, I, like I said, we are just trying to do our modest version of God's work to just share the collective knowledge that we have in two similar, but very different disciplines. And, um, again, reach out to me through psychology, psychology today at outlook.com um email me neuropsychdr at hotmail.com my cell phone 617-750-9411 eastern standard time i am more than happy to talk to you guys and and, and give as much information as i can i i view myself as a perpetual student not purporting to know everything in the world but you know, this podcast allows me to share our collective knowledge of what we have accumulated over the years through our, our education, our schooling, uh, our, our uh, clinical experience. And, you know, we try to make this as organic as possible. Uh, Julie's popping in again here. You don't push I, me. I just, I just want you to also know that our our patients, our clients are our best teachers too. And I'm, you know, I, I can't tell you how much I learn from the people that I work with and, you know, they're all amazing, um, in their own right. They're human beings and that people who have bipolar disorder are suffering. Even if they're manic and they seem happy, they're suffering and their family members and their loved ones are suffering as well. So. All right. All right. What do you knock it off one of the one of the best quotes now there's many but a great one that i learned in my cognitive behavioral training was uh i think it was a german psychiatrist danisa von deutsch she said there's two types of patients those i help and those i learn from and i've learned a lot from the patients I've worked with over the years, especially when you get into gender identity, borderline, um, stuff like that. So, again, our our humble and and just appreciation for how many people are following us and listening. What what, what are you throwing the mail on before? Um. But we love doing this, and we hope we're making an impact. And I. Again, I give my cell phone number out, and I've talked to colleagues like, why give your cell phone number out? Like, what are you rolling your eyes for? Wrap it up. Wrap it up. You went on and on for like 40 minutes. All right, guys. Contact me. We're here for you. Uh, Be well. I'm going to go back to my quote from Abraham Maslow. With any psychiatric disorder... Learn to become independent of the good opinions of other people. And Bruce Springsteen, if you're out there and you're listening, give me a call. All right? Till next week, be well, guys.